You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today I am very pleased to be sharing the microphones with a highly accomplished business leader. One whose storied career includes a six-year stint as the CEO of Seeing Machines, a spin-out of the Australian National University's Robotics Lab that is now listed on the London Stock Exchange and applying their world-leading computer vision systems to monitor and protect drivers operating a range of equipment from consumer automobiles to planes and mining machinery. Ken Kruger's name will be familiar to many who have been around the Australian startup scene, especially those in Canberra, the city that Ken has called home for most of his life. Born Canadian, Ken's education and early career were somewhat disjointed, but his arrival in Australia coincided with an emergence of entrepreneurial spirit and some opportune conversations with public servants that would ultimately set the foundation for his first venture, Catalyst Interactive. It was the start of a remarkable journey that saw Ken join the technology revolution of the late 90s and early 2000s, building up a major training services enterprise that counted Qantas, border security, and high-profile defense programs among its clients. This formative experience taught Ken everything he needed to know about running a technology company, and it was an experience he drew on heavily when he was tapped on the shoulder to take over the leadership of the then-troubled Seeing Machines and help it realize the potential its academic founders always knew it had. Ken Kruger, welcome to Lab Notes. Good morning, Leo. So you're best known for leading a company called Seeing Machines, but your story starts well before that. Could you tell me how you introduce yourself to new entrepreneurs and people at your meeting? Good question. Usually it's the diversity of things that I've done over the last, scary to say, but 40 plus years now, a crazy number of different jobs as a teenager and early twenties. And then, you know, talking my way into more of a technology role and then coming to Australia and catalyst and seeing machines. Yeah. Fantastic. Ken, and we'll, we'll try and cover off some of that journey, but appreciating that an hour is not enough to cover all of it. You were born in Canada, I believe, uh, and grew up there. Can you first just start us out with a bit of a reflection of of your time there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, born in the French-speaking part of Canada, and my father was actually, interestingly, the first German migrant allowed into Canada post-World War II. He was actually uh, conscripted into the German Navy at 18 or 19. He was a, a carpenter on a submarine supply ship in the North Atlantic, after the British got control of the Enigma decoding device, they were able to locate ships. They, my father's ship was one of those ships. The ship was scuttled. He was brought to Canada as a prisoner of war. And when he arrived in Canada, you know, all the men were off fighting. And so they put the German soldiers to work. And my dad, was a, as a carpenter cabinet maker, was allowed to leave the prison during the day and go and do work for people. And he ended up doing some work for the president of the Bank of Canada. And post-war... Uh, that gentleman helped him come back to Canada as his valet and then helped him set up a construction business. And so we ended up in just outside of the capital, just across the river in Quebec on the uh, French side of Ottawa. 
And um, my dad spent his whole life building a suburb. And I grew up in a just an amazing environment around a family business. And my father was in, incredibly entrepreneurial, which I, I didn't really understand at the time. But it's clear that it helped shape my attitude towards business. Yeah, it's an amazing environment to have grown up in, Ken. And those who know you now would probably be surprised to learn that you've never actually finished a university degree yourself. And even in high school, the journey wasn't necessarily smooth for you. What are your reflections on your formal education journey in Canada through high school and the attempted university degrees? Uh, yeah, well, the, I guess uh, high school and I didn't gel. You know, I don't, I don't know why. I'll never know why. And it makes me sad now looking at what I could have learned and didn't. But uh, I managed to graduate. I was quite young. So I was 16 when I graduated. Really no idea what I wanted to do. And between the ages of 16 and 22, I did uh, a wide variety of jobs. And you know, at some points, I couldn't afford a car. So I had a you know, classic old story, used a bicycle to get around and discovered bicycle racing. And uh, that was uh, a passion. I spent some time in in different countries racing and uh, you know, it was all about eat sleep train race and rinse and repeat and i tried university i've tried twice and the first time cycling definitely got in the way after a year and a half you know i just couldn't find the the blend to put enough focus into the school part and i just walked away from it and i went back a lot later uh knowing what i wanted to do and then didn't finish because i came to australia yeah, and I guess in hindsight, those two degrees were well aligned to your future career, even though you didn't get through them. It was a business management degree from Carlton University in Ottawa and then computer science in Edmonton, which was you know, probably at a time when computer science was a pretty new field of study. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because somewhere in my early 20s, I went to work for a construction company and when it was raining... Uh, you know, and you couldn't do the work outside. There was work to do inside. And one day somebody asked me to I don't know, do some paperwork in an office. And uh, just by coincidence on that day, these boxes arrived and start, people started unpacking these, you know, 386 computers. And, you know, I held a Microsoft mouse in my hand for the first time and just was really taken by them. And I think prior to that, I'd been sort of searching, you know, uh, in my mind, the perfect career was one that blended creativity and science and I could just never really put my finger on it and somewhere in the back of my mind I always sort of compared everything to being a watchmaker you know like a, a an old watchmaker where you had these precision pieces but it was also there was as much art as science that that made people interested in it and when I started playing with these computers I just realized that this was it you know it was, I was taken by them immediately and um, just changed the course of my life Amazing. And I guess speaking of life direction changes, you had a big one around this time too. You mentioned it. You moved to Canberra, which is some 14,000 kilometres from where you were in Canada. It's not quite the opposite side of the planet, but you gave it a red hot go. How did you end up in Canberra of all places? Yeah, I remember driving home one night and uh, picking up my wife, Heather, at work and said, uh, you you never guess what we're going to do. You know, and I was thinking like the weekend and uh, said, we're going to Australia. And for most Canadians, you, know, you have to sort of contextualize, right? You know, you get two weeks of leave a year. And so the thought of going to Australia just isn't in your, your vocabulary. You know, it's something you might do when you retire. And, and kind of wind the clock back also, sort of pre-internet almost. 
So when somebody tells you you're going to Canberra, Australia, you know, you've got to go to a library and get a travel book, and then you've got to go to a map store and buy a map. So we had about six, six or seven months notice, and it was supposed to be a two-year posting. Heather was coming here to work around security planning for the Sydney Olympics, amazingly, which is a, an incredible experience for her and uh, definitely changed our lives. So, so for context, Ken, what, what is your wife's profession? <laughs> um, you know, I, it's not very often I've been able to say this in my life, but um, today I can. You know, she was a spy. So she worked for the Canadian Security Intelligence Organization as a field agent for a long time and then came here. And you know, she had some experience with managing counterterrorism around large events. And that's what brought her here. And uh, it was supposed to be a two-year thing. And then here she stayed on. We, you know, I think she's the first non-Australian citizen to be allowed into ASIO. And I'm allowed to say that because she's declared now. And uh, so she started as a desk analyst and she finished up as the Deputy Director General of ASIO for probably six or seven years, and she still is today. And so, in 1995, a young Ken Kruger found himself living in an unfamiliar land. With neither established networks nor a tertiary education to open doors for him, it was clear that Ken was going to have to redefine his career trajectory. And one thing he was certain of is that he had developed a passion for the emerging fields of computer science and information technology. But arguably, it was his love of cycling, not computers, that kick-started his career in Australia. By becoming part of Canberra's cycling clubs, Ken built a network of friendships among the public servants of the city. And ultimately, it was a conversation on one of these rides that led to the foundation of Ken's first entrepreneurial venture, Catalyst Interactive. I asked Ken to share the story. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing story, Leo. Uh, you know, as a cyclist, you, you, there's these group morning rides that everybody sees on the side of the road. You know, in, in Australia, you're allowed to ride two abreast to motorist frustration, but to cyclists' uh, pleasure. And uh, one morning, I was riding beside this this guy. He's no longer with us, Richard Wilmot. He was telling me about a, a challenge that he was having at work. And uh, the Commonwealth government, they had decided to outsource the Commonwealth Employment Service and the go live date was looming and IBM had been contracted to develop the system. You know, there was a case management system and sort of CRM-ish type solution being built and then touchscreen kiosks for the, the employment centers. And it had been outsourced to, uh, I think, across three different organizations. And so the training was was looming and the system wasn't there. So they couldn't develop systems training. And we were riding and he told me about this problem and you know, I went away and you know, I don't know, I somehow it kind of stuck in my mind. And a few days later, I bumped into him again and on, the, on a bicycle and I said, you know, have you thought of building like a simulation of it? And he said, I don't understand. I said, well, if this, the interface exists, you, know, you could s simulate the processes and have this very you know, an online uh, like a computerized training program. And at the time, you know, 19, I think it's 95, there was no such thing as computer training. And, uh, you know, he said, is that possible? And I just, I said, oh, I'm sure it is. And he asked me to come in and see, see his boss. I went in to meet the secretary of the department and I explained what I was thinking about. And um, to my surprise, they said, how much would it cost? And I, I had no idea, but I, I said, I, I think it'd be somewhere between five and $600,000. And they said, when can you start? So that was the start of Catalyst. And uh, a few weeks later, I found myself having a floor of a government building 
with a bunch of subject matter experts building a training program for the or DEET, Department of Education, Employment and Training. And that just, that was the beginning of Catalyst. That might be one of the quickest government contract wins I've ever heard of, Ken. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. And uh, you know, we, we put, I put together sort of a back of the envelope business case. You know, we looked at travel costs, facilities, getting people to the training centers. And we built this, I mean, amazingly looking back now, you know, it was um, <laughs> uh, floppy disks. You know, and um, we built a, a remote learning management system. So you, you loaded the training, you went through a bunch of training. It had a bunch of sheets for floor walkers. It had assessments. And then you put the floppy disk back in and you mailed the floppy disk back to the headquarters. And then they, I built, there was a database back end. You loaded it up and you could basically see who had done it and not done it. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing project. I want to always remember. So yeah, using this cutting edge technology of floppy disks and the early internet, probably browsers like AltaVista. Yeah, started... uh, whole 16 whole colors. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm sure everyone thought it was mind blowing at the time. But let, let's continue the business journey because you, you grew out your customer base from these original government contracts to servicing more and more organizations. I think through kind of finance and business professionals first, but then eventually into civil aviation and border security. And looking at the timeframes here, I'm wondering if the 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center had something to do with this story and you moving into this space that obviously became a very hot topic in the early 2000s. It is. There was probably one before that that people, uh, unless you're old enough, don't remember, uh, Y2K, which really reshaped our business. You know, everybody was scrambling to try and you know predict what would break and fix it. And so a lot of new systems were being deployed around the world. So we wrote a, a, a crest you know, of demand for the likes of SAP, you know, a lot of enterprise applications, a lot of training programs. For Catalyst, uh, one of the pivotal moments was beating out Boeing proper and BA systems for the Qantas's 747 pilot refresher training in 1998 or 99. And that just took us into a league where you know there was a perception of no, there was no such thing as an ISO accreditation. But if you could work for a company like Qantas, people thought you could do anything. And then you're right, uh, 9/11 happened, and everybody's view on the world changed. And uh, in parallel to that, you know, somewhere in between there, the Pentium computer arrived with CD-ROMs and then DVDs and sound cards. And then, you know, first-person shooter games, we we sort of coined a, a term, I, I don't know if they use it anymore, but we called it smart games. And we started developing 3D multi-role training for naval applications for, um, I, I still, sometimes I see a lot of the um, the Australian uh, Defense Force have a beautiful 3D model of the uh, LHD ships, which was part of that training program developed in conjunction with Tizenkrupp. So the, the business just changed you know, from a sort of government induction orientation and systems training business, then into the finance and risk sector, and then into resources, and then really heavily into the defense sector at a global level. Yeah, and towards the end, you're working on some very important international projects, things that people would have heard of, like the Joint Strike Fighter and the Eurocopter. This must have been putting you into some very interesting and delicate conversations with you know, the global defense industry. Yeah, we were the only Australian company to to play a, a role in the training for the Joint Strike Fighter, now the F-35, which was uh, phenomenal with... Uh, KBR, Australian Aerospace for the Tiger attack helicopter, the MRH helicopter. And that's a story in itself that almost 
put Catalyst out of business, the MRH pro project. But the, um, yeah, and just the evolution of technology. We were never the, or very rarely, the subject matter experts at the training we were delivering, but we were experts in adult learning and leveraging technology to get the training to the people when they needed it and the way they needed it. Well, just before we go on, Ken, you mentioned there that the NH90 project almost killed your business. This is almost 10 years into operation now, and presumably you were pretty financially healthy going into that project. I sense there's a business lesson in here. So can we take a moment to just explore what that project was and, and why it was so damaging to Catalyst at the time? Yeah, interesting. I think you're like, one of the things I guess that I've, I think I've done well over the years, and I think it's a, it goes back to, um, you know, my, one of my biggest strengths and biggest weaknesses is a, a lack of ego. And I think to have a small company successfully time after time work with large enterprise, you have to learn to be humble and you know, you have to wear the other company's t-shirt and ball cap. You can't wear your own, I guess is the way I've explained it to people. And with, um, it was a long shot. We won this contract uh, through the work, hard, hard work of a great guy, Steve Hosking and Dave Fallon. We won the contract with, in conjunction with KBR to deliver the maintenance training for the tiger attack helicopter for the um, Australian army. And that ran, it was about a three-year project, you know, at the time, I can't remember, the you know, multi-million dollar project, very leading edge, using touch screens when they were still a, a novelty, three big touch screens where one was sort of the instructions, one was the helicopter, one was your tools and spare parts, and you could move from screen to screen. And there's this beautiful gimbal that let you, with your finger, rotate the helicopter and then take things apart. It was, it was amazing. And um, as we were reaching the end of that project, uh, Australian Aerospace, you know, the Australian subsidiary of uh, EADS or Eurocopter came to us and said, you know, we'd like to contract you directly. The Australian Army was going to, this multi-role helicopter, MRH-90 was going to be deployed and uh, they were trying to eliminate the middleman. They didn't want KBR involved. They wanted to work directly with us. We demonstrated our capability and they didn't feel they needed the defense prime in between. It was going to be a very, very similar project. And one of the challenges was, as we wrapped up the Tiger project in, I think it was like October or November, the MRH project wasn't going to start until March or April. And it was going to be our responsibility to retain the 19 people, the secure facility, the IT infrastructure, et cetera. It was going to be at our cost to support that through these four or five, six months. And as a small company, that's significant. And uh, we, you know, the business plan showed that we could do it. And about probably about four or five months into that hiatus, the um, Australian Army decided to develop the training themselves. And so the contract never came out. And so the, the cost to, you know, then the redundancies around these 20-ish people, breaking a lease on a building, disposing of a whole bunch of equipment and closing down an office really almost put the company out of business. It was a, a, a really a, a lesson learned at the time where in my mind, I decided that I would never start or run a business that depended solely on government work. It's interesting that, you know, this journey with the MH90 helicopter was, was trying to cut out KBR, but you clearly didn't burn that bridge too much because ultimately KBR bought you out. How did the trade sale come to be? Yeah, it's uh, pretty funny, actually. Um, you know, they were, our, they were our biggest customer and we had a great relationship with them. And um, the managing director at the time, his name was Rob Hawkins. He's still there. He actually was going back. He's, I believe he's still running the show here in Australia or APAC. And I uh, got a call from his EA on a sort of a Thursday or Friday before Anzac Day. 
you know, she said, uh, you know, Rob would like to meet you next week. Could you see him on Monday? And uh, in my mind, I thought, oh, it's a holiday. I wonder if he remembers. I said, yeah, I'm fine with that. But does he remember that it's a holiday? And she says, yes. And I said, okay, you know, I don't have a problem with that. And uh, she said, would you, would you be okay meeting him at uh, Ridge's Hotel? And I thought, okay, this is a little bit odd. But I thought, you know, sure, no problem. And so I showed up and it was like a Monday morning, you know, pretty quiet because it was a holiday and went into this private meeting room. And then he arrived a few minutes after. You know, he looked at me, he said, uh, you know, any idea why you're here? And in my mind, I, I just said, uh, I thought, well, you know, because we've really, you know, we've screwed up on something, I, I suspect. And he looked at me, he goes, no, no, he goes, uh, we want to buy your company. And, uh, I, I, you know, to, to be honest, it was a, I mean, Catalyst was an amazing journey when you think of it. It was like an organically grown business. We, we never borrowed money, raised money. And it was sort of this beautiful experience where, you know, you built the company one brick at a time. And if it didn't fit, you took it out and you, you put it somewhere else and you move people around. And it went from myself and a co-founder, Michael Grosser, to, you know, from two people to three people to four to 12 to 40 to 80 to 120 to uh, office in Melbourne, Sydney, yeah, Santa Monica and uh, the Netherlands over, over a period of time. And uh, Michael and I parted ways after about probably five or six years. There was a third partner, Kim Peckham as well, but I was the last person there at the end. And um, I never, ever contemplated selling the business. I never even contemplated that it had value. What I lived with was as a small private company, you know, one bad month was okay. Two bad months were bad and three bad months. I didn't have a house anymore. That was always there. And, you know, with 120 people, you took every single one of them home with you every single night. And when that that offer came, you know, what I thought about was this company could take much, much better care of the people than I ever could. So after the successful trade sale, Ken spent a year living out of a suitcase as he was sent around the globe to visit each of the 600 offices of Catalyst Interactive's new parent company, KBR Halliburton. After a decade of building his company and another year transitioning it to new owners, one would have forgiven Ken for calling it a day and riding off into the sunset, presumably on a bicycle. But Ken is not the retiring type, and almost as soon as his obligations at KBR were complete, he was planning his next venture. However, the story of Health Cube cannot be told without first introducing Ken's long-term mentor, Dennis Page. One of the reasons that Catalyst was what it was in uh, the ACT government in 1999 introduced a formal mentorship program. If you met certain criteria, business could put an application in. A couple of weeks later, received like five or six resumes of people. And, you know, you, you could pick two and interview the two and choose one. And the person that, that I asked to meet, his name was Dennis Page. He had just retired as the managing partner of Ernst & Young for the previous 14 years for New South Wales and the ACT. You know, I met Dennis and I, I always remember he told me, he said, he said, you know, people have described me as a workaholic, but I like to think of it as people just keep giving me interesting things to do. I think I am Dennis too. I have a lot of the same traits as him because I, I acquired them from him. And um, Dennis became my rock for a long time. And he introduced me to the most amazing person I've ever met. His name was Tony Andrews. And Tony had had an amazingly eclectic career, very similar to mine. His last, from memory, 24, 25 years was a global roaming project troubleshooter for IBM reporting directly to the president. 
And so I had these two incredible people, you know, on speed dial 24 seven for you know, 15 years and we conquered the world together. And so post catalyst, none of us wanted to part ways to start. And Dennis and I, uh, Dennis, I, I think Dennis passed away in March this year. I, I miss him terribly. And Tony about two years ago now in January. And, um, I think with Dennis, I, you know, I've always thought that I was probably the business-oriented son he always wanted and never had was the way he treated me. And um, you know, we, there was no way we weren't going to do something together after Catalyst. And so HealthCube was a solution to a problem brought to me through a, a friend of Dennis's who was, a, I guess, a pain management specialist working in aged care. And it was all about getting information to doctors that didn't know the patient at the bedside to take better care of the elderly in aged care. And it was a, it was just a little bit ahead of its time. And um, we could never hire the number of doctors we needed to turn into a viable business. And we sold it to Aspen at sort of a cost recovery because we thought they could hire doctors uh, more easily than we could. Yeah, really, really interesting there, Ken. You know, team, the team was the purpose of the whole venture, you know, spending time with people yeah, you like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's incredible. So... Look, we're getting to the point now in your career that you were brought into seeing machines. And I think it's you know, one of the reasons that you came onto my radar, as well as working with you through SafeGage, which we might get to at the end. Um, but seeing machines is, is now a publicly listed company. And indeed, it was when you joined. But originally, it was a, it was a university spin-out. So the type of companies that we usually focus on here at LabNotes, founded in the year 2000 or maybe 1999 by four ANU researchers. Are you able to give us the Cliff Notes version of seeing machines up to the point that you joined? Yeah, yeah. Uh, before that, I'm just going to tell you why I joined. Um, uh, you know, as as much as I love Dennis and working with Dennis, his vision for what I was going to do next didn't we didn't mesh. You know, he was managing money for a 12 or 14 high net worths. You know, that had been at Ernst and Young with him, and in his mind, I was going to do that with him. And, uh, you know, it just really wasn't my thing. And uh, being a Canadian, you know, where you never want to offend anybody. I took the seeing machines job as a graceful way of stepping out from under his wing without hurting his feelings. So just like, park that, but that's, that's why I ended up at seeing machines, if I'm honest with you. So seeing machines, an incredible story. So four people, Tim Edwards, Jochen Heinzmann, Sebastian Rougeau and Alex Zielinski, who then went on, you know, went to CSIRO, then to the chief scientist of the, the defense force for the Australian defense force. And now at uh, uh, Newcastle university, you know, I wasn't in the room, but the story goes that basically, you know, these four super smart guys sitting around and uh, you know, casting forward thinking, you know, what will the first robots be that humans interact with in mass numbers? You know, and this is in 1999. I mean, it's hard to even imagine. Your cameras were still analog. And they thought the car, the car is going to be a robot. And, you know, and it it will be someday. We know that. But I think they got their timing off a little bit. They thought it was going to happen around 2012. So it was going to be this, you know, 10-year journey to autonomous cars. And they thought that to really empower the robot and make it what it had to be, it had to have empathy for its human owner or user. And they decided that the starting point would be interpreting you know, where people are looking and what they're feeling, what they're able to do based on what they're looking at and doing with their head and face. 
So that, that was the genesis for it. And it's probably the, the, the piece in there that allowed Seeing Machine to succeed was that Seeing Machines, because it was going to be in a car, it was going to be outdoors in forever changing ambient environments where you have you know, lighting and cameras fighting with the sunlight and darkness, et cetera. And that condition or those sets of conditions to overcome those has been the, the failure of most other companies that have tried to do what Seeing Machines has done. Yeah, I'd love to talk to some of these founders eventually to get the full story on their you know, university licensing and their IPO journey. But they, they, they did IPO in 2005 on the London Stock Exchange, which was still yeah. seven years ahead of when you joined. So this company yeah. was a you know, substantial beast by the time you were hired in. Why, why were you offered the job, I guess is my question. Yeah, I think, you know, like in hindsight, everybody many, many times has regretted the IPO. So they were pre-revenue, you know, an external organization talked them into the IPO. And the only people that made money from the IPO were the people that talked them into it. It's one of those cases, you know, they, and it was the, the secondary exchange in London was, was new. And there was, you know, a, a big bags of cash on offer and not enough companies there to take it. And so they you know, put seeing machines up. So they IPO'd, and I think from memory, it was, they raised, a, I, I can't remember if it was Australian dollars or pounds, about 7 million. And the, they thought they were set. And, you know, so they, they were selling a product, a research product called FaceLab. It was a very, very low volume, high value uh, product. So it was really almost negligible. But they, in, I don't even remember what year I started. I think, I want to say 2012, maybe. And uh, so when I arrived, you know, eyes wide shut. Um, what I found was, unfortunately, I found four founders that had lost trust in each other, four founders with very, very different visions for what they wanted the company to be, four founders that all had different sectors in mind as the roadmap and different products and no money in the bank, no direction. And um, interestingly, the CEO, Nick Cerniaz, the handover was 10 minutes. He gave me a bit of instruction and then picked up his car keys and drove away. And he was sort of a, a fly in, fly out Sydney based guy. He spent, I think, you know, a week, a month in Canberra and his real love was the science and not the business. And uh, the COO Belinda Burgess had sort of stepped up and was, was really running everything operational. And so the company was, it was really adrift and, you know, people described it as a, a science experiment at the time. And it's probably not a bad description of it. And uh, it was it was very very new for me, and I think everybody was skeptical. You know, everybody at Seeing Machines was an engineer with a you know a PhD in something. And you know, I came in, and I always remember sitting down in this. They had this big huge boardroom with this big table, and everybody there was about 25, 28 people in the company, and everybody crowded around and <laughs> asked me what I was going to do. And uh, you know, my response was, "I well, I'm going to talk to every one of you and learn a little bit more about the business before I make that decision." But it. it it needed a bit of house cleaning. Uh, I, I wondered whether I was going to tell the world about this today. And uh, I, I guess I will. I, I did something that I don't think you ever get to do twice in your career, but I fired the board that hired me. And um, the way I did that, it was, uh, I, again, I, I don't think I've ever told anybody this, but I used the first AGM to mount a coup with a select group of shareholders to not reelect some of the board members. And um, that started uh, sort of a house cleaning. And then two of the founders, the entire board, and that just gave us a fresh slate to start again. 
found one of the bigger investors, one here in Australia, David Payton, one in, in the UK, Mike Roberts, convinced them to put a bit more money into the company to keep us going and circled the wagons and looked at the technology we had, went out and met some customers and then sort of decided, you know, what, what products would we drop and when and what were we going to become? And we set our sights on this transport safety thing. You know, we, we, we identified, I think from memory, it was 35 or 36 unique applications for the technology, probably all of them, each one of them could have been a viable business on its own, but we sort of drew a circle around five that were transport oriented and, and they, they all were you know, spread out over three horizons. So back going backwards, it was, you know, the long game was automotive. Uh, before that, we thought expected aviation before that was rail uh, then commercial road transport and mining as the, the first cab off the rank and leveraging the evolution of the technology and the you know the down costing of the of processing over time to allow us to do that look this is this is your first time stepping into the world of public company management as opposed to your successful business journeys as private companies for, for you what was what were the big differences between running you know a public company and having to report so openly versus what you had been able to do previously uh, with CI in particular? You know, it, it, it wasn't that different. I think the philosophy I applied to it was I met as many investors as I could. And I told every single one of them that I was going to treat this as though it was my own money, the way I had at Catalyst. And the only thing I could promise them was that I would never lie to them. I stayed true to that my entire time at Seeing Machines. Again, Seeing Machines' success was the company's ability to build trusted relationships between much, much larger organizations and to gradually convince institutional investors that we were backable and that we would deliver. The number's a little bit scary. I think I raised about 100 million pounds during my time at Seeing Machines. And... Um, I always remember a, a fund in London, you know, that when you looked at their investments, their biggest holding at the time was uh, Microsoft, Cisco, it was these big, big companies. And their smallest one had a market capitalization of, you know, in the billions and, uh, or hundreds of millions. And then there was seeing machines, you know, and I think at the time our market cap was, uh, you're going to laugh, but I think it was like 12,000 pounds. It was a basically a dead business, you know, it had, they were trading at like sub, 2p or something it's just some absurd number but i always remember this guy sitting on the other side of the table you know we kind of like getting to the pointy end of the conversation about them coming in and uh, the guy looked at me and he just said i hate it when i fall in love with a story and i just thought oh he's hooked so after successfully restructuring and recapitalizing seeing machines Ken had to set out on the arguably more difficult journey of delivering on the vision he had sold to the investors and his new team. This involved applying Seeing Machine's core technology to new markets in mining, aviation and the automotive industry, one after another. A process that would take up the entirety of Ken's tenure as CEO from 2011 to 2017. But his accomplishments during this time are phenomenal. And for my next question, I asked Ken to give a quick summary of where he got the company to over those six years. Yeah, you know, the, the, I guess the, the steps were signing this deal with Caterpillar in 2015 and licensing them the mining technology and then injecting some more cash into the business plus royalties. 
allowed us to do something different, going to market with a de-ruggedized variant of that mining product for uh, commercial road transport called Guardian. You know, again, building a great team around that. And then, you know, a foray into rail with a subsidiary of Caterpillar called Progress Rail and a long-term, you know, commitment to aviation, Pat Nolan leading that side of the business. But the big play in automotive, in one of my first meetings with an automotive tier one, the general manager of this company told me that um, in automotive, it's 10 years to get to a million units before you make a cent, where it was his advice. And, and he was so accurate. In 2015, when we signed that deal with Caterpillar, you know, there's some press around it in mining magazines and tech magazines. And somehow General Motors picked up on that. And I got a, an email one day in my inbox from somebody at General Motors saying, can we have a call? We've seen what you're doing with Caterpillar. We'd like to talk about that. So I got this call from General Motors. We had a chat and told them what we were doing. And they were, they were up front. They said, look, we're planning to launch a car in 2017. And we think what you have would be a benefit to the vehicle. And so we flew over to San Diego and we, we rented a car and we installed this big, heavy Pentium-based mining device in the boot of the car. And then we went for this six-hour drive and the, these engineers in the back seat were tight-lipped. They wouldn't tell us what, what it was. And, you know, we dropped them off at the airport afterwards and they went away and then you know, we didn't hear anything for forever. And then three months later, we got a you know, call saying, look, you know, we, we like what we saw you know, could we buy a unit? We'd like to send it to Virginia Tech Transport Institute and have some you know, sophisticated testing done on its performance. And so we gave them a unit and uh, there was an internal debate because uh, I can't remember the guy that was heading up VTT at the time. You know, people saw him as a competitor and there was a nervousness around the IP, but it was a, an internal battle. You know, it was kind of like the academic side of the business fighting with the commercial side of the business, which was a healthy tension all the time. And uh, so we sent them a unit. And then again, it was like complete silence. And then three or four months later, all of a sudden we got this PowerPoint presentation, you know, nothing attached to it. And it was the report from the testing. And it showed that this uh, you know, rudimentary head tracker worked really well. You know, they tried to on male-female genders, multi-ethnicity, eye shapes. And on this test track, they'd done something like 180 different people. And it worked really well at detecting eye closure, looking at instruments, looking at center console, looking at left side mirror, right side mirror. But it didn't do anything for the rear view mirror. And that's because mining trucks didn't have rear view mirrors. So we never even worried about it. And, uh, but they thought it was, it was a solid enough foundation to build on to, to deliver what they wanted. So we started meeting with GM and they told us that uh, in the end, the decision was that, look, you know, we like what you do, but we don't want a mining product. We want an automotive grade product and we require you to go and work with a tier one. And uh, we said, well, we don't have a problem with that. And they said, well, here's the tier one we'd like you to work with. And they gave us some phone numbers and names. And we started talking to the tier one. And for better or worse, the tier one was Takata, which is the famous airbag recall that will never end. You know, it's still ongoing now. And uh, just such an unfortunate happening. It was, uh, I think the company was already 80 years old, an amazing company, just so focused on occupant safety only occupant safety and such a strong culture and or and vision around you know automotive safety and we started working with them and it was just this amazing relationship that was ultimately destroyed by the, the you know the company was destroyed by the airbag recall so we had to find new partners and i guess long story short when i left the company had probably about two two to three hundred million us dollars in book business and automotive 
that is just starting to come to market now in, in 2023, 24. And then the ultimate goal, you know, we became very, very human factors oriented. You know, we were early adopters of machine learning and AI around uh, computer vision. And you know, I think seeing machines really convinced the world that distracted driving was a much, much bigger risk factor than anything that had ever experienced before with the arrival of the mobile phone. And that uh, starting now with uh, Euro NCAP, driver monitoring over the next few years will become mandated in all cars to get a five-star rating. So it's that's the journey, basically. You have this email from GM in, in 2015, September 15 to 2025, that it will now be in every car sold almost around the world over the next five years. So by mid-2017, Ken had stepped down as CEO of Seeing Machines, but he maintained a close association with the company, serving as its executive chairman for two years and briefly reprising his CEO role to help smooth a leadership transition the following year. But as Ken's focus shifted away from managing Seeing Machines, it was increasingly taken up with the challenge of supporting the next generation of Australian founders. Over the last five years, Ken has been an investment director for university-linked funds, including Significant Capital Ventures and Epicor, and serving as a director or advisor to dozens of startup projects, including Visionary Machines, Partington, Safe Gauge, Flame Systems, and Liquid Instruments. While it is not unusual to find ex-founders like Ken serving on startup boards, Ken sets himself apart by his level of engagement often taking a very hands-on role inside the companies he is supporting. I asked Ken what is driving him to keep dedicating so much of his time and energy into the startup sector. Yeah, it's, uh, that's a great question. <laughs> I wish I had the answer. You know, like uh, most days I get mad at myself because, you know, every morning starts with, you know, how am I not going to disappoint somebody today? And uh, because of the commitments that I, I where I've said yes, I'm always late. I'm always trying to catch up on on the promises I've made to people, and it's not because I'm, you know, sitting around drinking coffee or or watching TV. It's just I, I I'm not good at saying no. You know, I don't know why. I, when I meet somebody in my mind, all I'm thinking about is how can I help this person. So I always say yes, and it's you know back to Dennis's thing, right? It's like people just keep asking me to do interesting things. You know, and I, you know we haven't really even mentioned the word Epicor yet, which is a, an amazing story in its own journey. And so, you know, I've inherited this small, this small fund and I, I've sort of had the incredible freedom to shape it into this little lending institution, you know, that, that allows me to work with small companies. And with every one of those loans, I make the offer of all the free help you want. And, you know, some companies take me up on that, some don't. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's just the fact that, uh, you know, maybe what Dennis and Tony gave me for very, very little return is part of it. Uh, you know, I, I think it was Tony once when I, I said, you know, how long did you work there? And he said, I've never worked a day in my life, you know, and, and because he just loved what doing. And I, I, I feel the same way almost all the time. It's the variety. We're not here for a long time. I want to make the most of it. I, I want to help as many people as I can. I love, I love the art of business. You know, I love the interaction. I love the strategy. I think that businesses should be measured. I, I, I always wish there was a measurement in nimbleness, you know, the ability to 
redirect energy, to pivot, to recover from adversity, to celebrate the wins and move on. And in the words of Pat Nolan, you know, at Sing Machines, you don't want your team to play the grand final every day, but if you don't ask them to play it from time to time, they'll never be the people they can be. I, I don't know if that's an answer, but that's all I can tell you. I think it speaks to the passion, Ken, uh, and that's really what we wanted to hear. Look, can I can I finish off this interview with a question on SP specialist inclusion services? And you know, you've, you've combined your passions for business, for for supporting kids with autism, and for cycling in a lot of ways uh, over the last probably four or five years. Can you tell us about that journey for you in particular? Yeah, it's a you probably the best thing I've ever done, actually. Uh, so as a cyclist, a friend, John Thorne, had a son with autism. And I remember going to clock back probably 20 years now, you know, watching him and his wife live with the challenge, trying to get their son to school, from school. You know, he, he loved music. And so he'd disappear. When he was missing, they would go to, I think it was called Insanity. It was a music store chain in, in Australia. And they had headphones where you could listen to you know the, the current CDs. They just knew that they would find them there. That was almost like the babysitter. But John struggled with this, you know, what will he do when I'm not around anymore? How can I find him gainful employment? How, you know, how can I make sure he'll be all right? And so that that sort of started. And John was the manager of a Paxis people, a, a recruitment firm. And uh, I think I discovered an article and it was a company called CSC that had a group of neurodiverse workers that were scanning lines and lines of code looking for bugs that the average human could never detect or could never do that type of work. And they were paying them you know, real salaries to do this incredibly important work. And uh, we talked about that and I've never forgotten those conversations uh, on the bike. And then with seeing machines, I think it was in probably in 2017, you know, we, when we launched this uh, commercial road fleet product called Guardian, it was a you know, buy the hardware and then pay for monitoring services. And so we had a monitoring center, a 24-7 monitoring center in Tucson, Arizona. And we always struggled to retain the graveyard shift from midnight to eight. And you know, somebody smart realized that the graveyard shift was almost the day shift in the ACT. And so we, with uh, Sam Pollock, I knew Sam from the gym and I asked her, she was working with young people with autism and I asked her whether she thought it'd be viable to staff a monitoring center with a neurodiverse workforce. And she went away and thought about it and she came back with a, a whole bunch of things that would have to be done around the environment, you know, how people were sitting and where they were looking and the lighting and the, the processes and the management. And so we went to CIT, the TAFE in Canberra, in ACT, and we had them modify their cert four in customer service. And I think from memory, we were able to, through a, an agency, we identified 30 young people with autism. We put them through this program. The first step was that they had to graduate. It was a month-long program. 20, 22 or 23 made it through. And we hired 18 and we trained three managers to manage that group. And it was one of the most amazing moments of my life as we invited the parents to come in and learn about what their kids would be doing. And the parents were so incredibly grateful and emotional, you know, that they, in their mind, their child was going to spend their working life, you know, restocking shelves at Kohl's through the night wearing headphones. And instead they were going to be sitting at a desk, working with peers, becoming independent and literally saving lives every day. So, you know, from one extreme to the other. 
And uh, the company won the Chief Minister's Inclusion Award. We got some grant money to cover the difference in cost. And um, I guess the, the happy and funny end to the story is when I finished, Sam asked me whether I could put some time into helping her scale her business. And I said, absolutely. And um, I didn't realize that that was going to be volunteering three days a week to work with 17 neurodiverse boys that helped them make it through high school. So that's, I do two days and three evenings a week. I work with 17 incredible kids, each with their own unique challenges, just hoping that they end up finding things to do like the, the, the people at Sing Machines did. Well, Ken, that is a fantastic place to wrap up. I know there's more we could cover, but in the interests of time, we're going to have to say farewell. Ken Kruger, thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Look, it's been a pleasure, Leo. It's not very often I get to tell the whole story and there's, there's, you know, we could probably go for three more hours. You know, within the first two years of Catalyst, I exceeded all of my career expectations and the rest has just been just a, an amazing, amazing journey. And I, 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 I wouldn't change any of it. And, you know, the good times make the bad bearable and the bad make the good amazing. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.